Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series. Brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we're joined by Heidi Roizen. Heidi is a partner at Threshold Ventures, where she serves on the boards of directors at Zooks, Planet, and Memphis Meets. She's also on the advisory committee for the new Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI. Here's Heidi. Thank you very much, Tom, and hello, everybody. It's um, such a pleasure to be back to uh, back at ETL again. Um, today, I'm going to talk about the things I've observed that distinguish entrepreneurs who survive a crisis from those who do not. My observations come from four decades in tech, including more than a decade as a CEO and entrepreneur myself, and over 20 years as a venture capitalist, including now as a partner here at Threshold Ventures, where I'm sitting right now by myself because our office is closed, uh, and where I and my partners collectively work on about 50 active portfolio companies at this time. I serve on four boards of private companies at this time and two public boards as well. I want to start by anchoring this moment in time with data, in part because this is recorded and may be watched in the future. As of today, there are approximately 2 million confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide. In the US, about an hour ago, apparently we just hit the 30,000 uh, mortality mark, 30,000 deaths in the United States. In the last three weeks, 17 million US citizens applied for unemployment benefits. The vast majority of the United States is in some form of lockdown, and Stanford is conducting all its classes remotely, which is why we don't get to be together on campus. If that isn't sobering enough, I also want to remind everyone how rapidly this has all happened. The Oscars were only 66 days ago, and the Super Bowl was only 73 days ago. It's kind of hard to imagine you know, how little we were thinking about this only 60, 70 days ago. My point is this, the world has changed a lot. It has changed very quickly and we are nowhere near the end of the change nor a return to normal yet. All this change is also impacting entrepreneurs and startups in rapid and unprecedented ways, some more than others. For Bay Area startups, most have been on work from home status for about a month now. For some companies, such as those who primarily develop and sell software, they can mostly keep working, albeit differently. For other companies, such as those with consumer-facing retail establishments, those with physical goods and complicated global supply chains, or those engaging in complex hardware development, the shutdown presents an almost insurmountable challenge. The impact on each company's operations and outlook is also vastly different. For example, companies who provide products that support remote workforce or facilitate home deliveries are booming while many in sectors such as restaurants, travel, or other forms of hospitality are seeing their businesses drop off a cliff. So, while the observations I'm about to share may not be applicable in every situation, I've seen most of these be broadly employed to help entrepreneurs make it to the other side of a crisis. So this is my, it was gonna be my top 10 list, but I have nine of them. So it's gonna be my top nine list with a 10th that's a little bit more directed at you personally. So as they say on the news, let's get after it. Here are the nine I consider the most pervasive. Number one, the best entrepreneurs understand that their startup operates in a broader world and that they watch for leading indicators that foretell massive change. I liken this to a saying from the author William Gibson, who said, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. 
I have a corollary to that. We'll call it the Roizen corollary, which is the data is here, it's just not being evenly processed. Most entrepreneurs are so inwardly focused. It's my team, it's my product. They don't poke their heads up and out enough to understand the impact that exogenous events might have on them. I made this mistake as an entrepreneur in my early days until a change in regulation threatened my business model and I had to suddenly start paying attention to what those people back in Washington were doing. It hadn't even occurred to me before then that anything other than my own efforts would impact my business. Those of us who have been around a while may not have experienced a pandemic before, but we have experienced things like major earthquakes, tsunamis, the dot-com bust, the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And I can say as someone who was running a company or on the board of more, one, more, uh, one or more companies through all of those, the companies I work with were impacted in dramatic ways and clearly through no fault of their own. And while we couldn't have predicted any of these with specificity, we could of course anticipate that something would happen sometime and learn how to prepare for that. Another problem in the current situation is we humans have a hard time looking for things we've never seen before. A nod to all you black swan fans out there. We humans also have a really hard time wrapping our heads around exponential growth rates. Ray Kurzweil, the famous author and inventor, said something in a speech many years ago that really struck with me, stuck with me. He said that linear growth rates and exponential growth rates look a lot the same in the beginning. That is, they both look kind of small for a while till suddenly one of them takes off to spectacular heights. Another human error that we have is that we have a really harder time processing things that are happening to other people we don't know in lands far away, even when that thing, such as a virus, could easily happen to us. But all that said, the data for coronavirus was there. It was in Wuhan, and then it was in Italy, and in the commentary and warnings of some of the world experts about what was likely to happen, including the implications on our daily lives if it played out as expected. In the Threshold portfolio, it was interesting that our entrepreneurs who sought first with the ones with China-dependent supply chains, and they were already talking about this in late January, early February, and starting to plan how they might need to adapt. To summarize point one, it's not good enough to focus on your product or even your competition. You have to develop an understanding about the world and how that world impacts your startup. And you have to develop a sense for what data can tip you off to any big changes that may be ahead. Point two, the best entrepreneurs understand that most of what has happened up to this moment is irrelevant. Okay, what do I mean by that? I call it, so what, now what? which is usually the answer I'll say to anyone who'll say something like, for example, well, but my last valuation was X. Well, so what? Now what? You know, your last valuation is irrelevant to the world today. I, in fact, have a term for this. I call it valuation nostalgia because it's really not relevant to any discussion you might have today. So what if your revenues were XYZ last quarter? So what if your business model worked in a glowing economy? The point is, now what? Now what do you do about it? The entrepreneurs that move quickly to understanding that they have to look forward and not look in the rearview mirror and not think about whatever they may have been worth on paper or post their last round are the ones that can most quickly understand and adapt to the future environment that they're now dealing with. Point three, great entrepreneurs learn from history regardless of whether they experienced it themselves. How? Well, they ask. 
Now, this is part of the reason why old fogies like me can still have a job in the tech economy, because some of that old experience we have can be of value. For example, let's talk about raising capital. One of the things that's interesting about fundraising is all our venture firms, we didn't suddenly go away. We, didn't, we don't suddenly not have capital anymore. But what has happened in this crisis and has happened in crises before this is all of a sudden we have to take a breather. We watch the public markets and stocks are tanking, which means there's not as good an exit environment for our portfolio companies. There's not as much of a benchmark to understand how we should ultimately think about multiples. We, um, our portfolio has, every company in our portfolio has a dramatic issue to deal with. And so a lot of VCs spend more of their time on the existing portfolio in a crisis time. And then the most important thing to realize about most VCs is we don't have to invest money right now. When you're an entrepreneur, you have to make payroll every two weeks, right? You have to pay your expenses. As a VC, we can say, why don't we take three or four months and see how this market plays out so we understand what kind of businesses are going to succeed or fail, what kind of business models are going to work or not. And in this unusual case, even relative to all of the things I've been through before, we can actually meet face-to-face -face with entrepreneurs again. Now, many companies, Threshold included, are still taking meetings and we're still hearing entrepreneur pitches. So I'm not saying that we're all closed for business, but what I'm saying is what history will tell us is usually in a crisis, even though private equity and venture firms have money, they will slow down their investment for a while while they take stock. And that means there's a chance that you won't be able to immediately raise money right now. Let's also talk about when to expect a recovery and what has history taught us. Well, optimistic entrepreneurs, and basically that's all entrepreneurs, would like to believe that things will snap back to normal, the proverbial V-shaped recovery. Yet those of us who've been through multiple cycles know that they almost inevitably take longer than that. It's also hard for some of our entrepreneurs, since this has been a boom economy for about the 10, last 10 years, to even understand what anything but a, but a boom economy looks like. Because again, going back to my point earlier, they've never, literally never experienced one. And so it's just a lot harder for them to get their heads around what that actually feels like. But anyway, if you, know, if you didn't live it yourself, you can talk to old fogies like me and we can tell you what it was like because generally speaking, these sorts of things will happen again. And you may as well learn from the, the scars that some of us have on our backs from the prior. So number four, this sounds so simple. But surviving entrepreneurs understand early that all that matters right now is survival itself. Okay, what do I mean by that? One of the things we deal with is entrepreneurs who say, well, no, 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 I know the economy's down, but I know there's a crisis right now, but I need to keep doing what I'm doing because, you know, my competition and because this is the path I'm on and because my employees will be demotivated if I don't, if I change course or if I slow things down or whatever. There are all sorts of reasons why you don't want to change. And many of those, again, are going to be irrelevant in the current situation. And what the most important thing is survival itself. Live to fight another day and you can bloom back out again. One of my partners here, Emily Melton, loves to say, must be present to win. You know, it's the old adage on, you know, the raffle tickets and things like that, but it is true for entrepreneurship too. If you die, before things recover, you will not win. 
any form of survival is better than not survival. Even if it means hibernating for a while, even if it means laying off people, slowing down your product development, it's likely your competition is facing the same thing. And so, and again, though not always, usually what is slowing you down is slowing everyone else down as well. So there is also some comfort in knowing that as long as you can make it to the other side, you're still going to be able to reinvigorate things and have a shot at winning. Point number five, closely correlated to the one I just talked about. The best entrepreneurs understand what they can and cannot control, and they build a plan that allows them to survive with only what they can control. So for example, what can you not control? Well, as I just said, you can't control a fundraise. One of the things you've got to think about as an entrepreneur, if you're sitting right now today, is can I make it with only the money I've already raised? Because not to say you may never raise money again, you might, but the only thing you can count on is the money you already have in the bank. And so, again, the best entrepreneurs I know, they really think about how can I actually make it only on the money I already have? Another thing that you can't control are your revenues. You think you can. You think that things are going to be the same. You have a budget. You have a plan. People bought last quarter. Why aren't they, especially in SaaS companies? But the reality is that is actually also outside your control. And so a business model that's based on a certain revenue level sustaining is also going to be one that you can't necessarily count on. Most importantly, what you can control is what you spend. And that is, you know, again, these are such simple things and yet they're so hard to discuss because people really want to believe that the future will look like the past. And the sooner we all recognize that right now the future is not going to look like the past and the only things that we can count on are those which with within our control, the sooner you can make changes. So number six, the best entrepreneurs look beyond their, beyond their own walls to understand the implications on everyone and everything else in their ecosystems. And again, this is one, man, you learn it with experience. You focus on yourself. You focus on what's going on with your product, what's going on with your employees. You forget to think about, for example, your customers. So for example, here's something we learned in the dot-com bust. Companies who were only selling to other venture-backed companies had a really big problem when a lot of those companies went away in the dot-com bust. It was a fascinating experience to realize that all your revenues dried up because all your customers were non-profitable companies that were counting on further investment dollars. When the investment dollars went away, the customers went away. Another thing you have to think about is that prospects for recovery vary dramatically by industry. If your customers are in a bad industry, that is going to impact your business, even if your business and what you do is, is working fine. There may also be dramatic impact on your supply chain. This is something I learned many years ago. I was on the board at TiVo when the tsunamis hit, and it turned out some of the critical parts that we needed were impacted by, by the tsunamis. And it just wasn't something that I had ever really thought about, you know, where everything comes from. So you really have to think about the knock-on effect of all of the things that are going on in your whole ecosystem and not just you and your own company. And by the way, when you do this, there sometimes are positives that you discover. There are challenges that in, in turn allow you to discover new efficiencies or processes or even new customers. Not all change is bad change, even when it comes about because of something bad. Point number seven, 
The most successful leaders of past crises that I have experienced have moved faster and cut deeper than most everyone else. Okay, that's painful. Let's face it. It is awful to cut deeper. It is awful to make it a fast decision. It feels extremely uncomfortable and it is painful. Most startups that are venture backed are not yet running profitably since mostly they are, they're either working on something big that requires a lot of money before they can generate revenue or they often trade profit for growth. So literally for them, time is money and delays cost money. I have seen entrepreneurs in this current downturn move immediately to cost-cutting measures, and I have seen entrepreneurs who are still months after the first signs that things are going to be bad are still wondering what to do because they're not just grabbing it and saying, we have to make the change and we have to cut deep. By the way, cutting deep in a way, it, it feels bad. It feels like the wrong thing to do. But I would argue, in retrospect, usually those deep cuts are actually better for morale than what I would call the death by a thousand cuts. Because again, most employees are thinking about what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to me. And if this week you lay off 10 people and then you say it's fine, and the next week you lay off another 10 people and then you say it's fine, and then the week after that, you lay off another 10 people, what are your employees going to think? This is an unstable place and I can't count on it being here where if you take a lot of the pain up front and deal with it once, you can allow your, 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 cust I mean, sorry, your employees to regroup and feel a little bit more confident, hopefully, that you've cut deep enough that you have a path forward to survive. So I really do believe that it is better to go fast and deep and then rebuild around what is left. Now, again, entrepreneurs are optimists and it's really hard for them to think that that things are really going to be bad and it's really hard for them to think that everything isn't going to just bounce back to normal and to those are entrepreneurs I usually say well look if it does if it bounces back sooner if you can raise more money if your revenues don't suffer you can build back up again but don't don't anticipate the good stuff happening until you know the good stuff is going to happen Okay, number eight, the best leaders don't forget their empathy and their humanity. This is also so hard at a time like this when a leader has to make decisions that result in people losing their jobs. Often the decision really is, look, you can let 25% of your team go now or you can let 100% of them go later when you run out of money. Even then, knowing that doesn't make this easier, but recognizing the difficulty and the loss and having empathy for those affected while it may not change the result, is gonna change how everyone feels about what happened. I think that you can you know, go out and look, there have been all sorts of, you know, since again, we are in such unprecedented times where people are literally being laid off by Zoom. There are even good ways and bad ways to lay off people when, they're, when, they're, when you can't physically be present. There is a personal approach. There are things that companies and their investors can do to help people redeploy elsewhere or come back at a later time. And they're, you know, just understanding and recognizing that we are all humans first and we're our jobs second. You can have empathy while you're still making difficult decisions. And someday when things recover and, and they will recover, you will be judged by, by the empathy you had and people will determine whether they want to come back or even stay and follow you by the things you did as a leader during the difficult times. 
I think the other thing to remember that's difficult about this crisis, unlike any of the ones before, is we are literally dealing with people who are not only dealing with financial issues, but health issues. We are, you know, I, I know people who have been impacted by COVID. I know people who have passed away from COVID. For people who are their families who are dealing with this sorts of thing, this isn't just a minor setback. This is life-changing and life or death. And so recognize also, particularly for entrepreneurs who have employees in their companies affected personally by COVID from a health perspective, that you need to give people time and space to cope with things outside of work because we're just, we're just dealing with things we've never had to deal with before. And finally, number nine, of my, the last of my formal things. The best entrepreneurs actively observe both the good and the bad about the changes they're experiencing and look for the opportunity that change creates. So it is said that many of the great companies are born in times of difficulty, and I've seen that. I've seen entrepreneurs rise to the occasion. I've seen entrepreneurs currently meet immediate needs, like Carl Bass, the former CEO of Autodesk, who's a tremendous entrepreneur and maker, is um, making face masks in his maker labs over in Berkeley. I've seen other people making other forms of PPE. I've seen biotech companies pivoting to work on testing or, or vaccines or therapeutics. And by the way, the opportunities aren't all just in dealing with the coronavirus itself. We've had to disrupt our lives. And out of that disruption, some changes will inevitably be positive and form fertile ground for new companies to emerge in ways that weren't possible when we were still stuck in our old ways. So that's my advice about what I've seen work among the past and present entrepreneurs that I've worked with. And I hope some of what I've said will help you in the future when you face a cataclysmic world of change while your startup is getting off the ground. But I'm going to close on something a little more personal because I realize that most of you are still students today. And maybe some of what I've said sounds interesting, but sort of esoteric because you're not running a company right now. And so this is all well and good, but what can I take that's actionable today? So let me try to give you something you can put into effect today and something that certainly is very important to me. The truth is, I think that many of the lessons I've talked about today for entrepreneurs can apply to us in our personal lives as well. And I can summarize this work-life advice in six words. Those words are embrace truth, make choices, and take action. I actually think these words are so important that, I don't know if you can see this, uh, I, have a, I have bracelets that say embrace truth, make choices, and take action. Oop except they're not in the right order today. Don't take the action before you make choices. Here, wait. <laughs> Embrace truth, make choices, take action. I think it's that important that I actually wear it on my wrist every day as a reminder of not only what I should be doing at work, but what I should be doing personally as well. So how can one apply it now? Well, first, I think we all need to strive to embrace truth every day. And it's hard because there are a lot of different sources and it's not always clear what the truth is. But I try very hard to educate myself on how everything is evolving so I can deal with what is, not with what I wish it would be, both, both in the board decisions I have to make and as a member of my family, then things I have to decide in my personal life. I'm really trying to embrace truth and I'm really trying to find that truth and incorporate it immediately into the decisions that I have to make. I think we're all being forced today with making choices that are quite odd, even about the minutia of our lives. And I would encourage you that instead of ever dreading every change and everything you can't do right now, 
that you choose not only to embrace, but to lean into these choices. Because interestingly, even minutia of life can add up to huge and positive changes if we act on them proactively and consistently. I have a uh, note on my calendar every morning at the time I'm supposed to work out. It doesn't say work out. It says, people do not decide their futures. They decide their habits, and their habits decide their futures. So um, it's pretty interesting that we can actually change our habits, right? And, um, and I'm a huge fan of the book Atomic Habits. If any of you have habits you want to change, read Atomic Habits. I think it's very interesting that right now, because our lives have been disrupted, because we aren't doing our normal commutes and our normal evening activities and all of these things, we've been disrupted. And when you, dis when you get disrupted, you have the opportunity to change habits and make different choices. What kind of choices am I talking about? Oh, come on. You know what kind of choices I'm talking about. Some people are eating more. Some people are eating less. Some are exercising more. Some are exercising less. Some are drinking more, drinking less, sleeping more, sleeping less, binging on Netflix, reading all those books you meant to read, getting in shape, not getting in shape. And the list goes on and on and on. I'm sure for each of you, your life looks different than normal. And a lot of that makes it harder. But I think for a lot of people, it opens up space and it throws a wrench into your normal routines, which allows you to trade some of your bad habits for better ones or recognize that a lot of ways you were spending your time back in that old world that doesn't exist anymore and your money and your energy, those may not have been such good ideas after all. As my good friend, Professor Tina Selig says, never waste a good crisis. And so I'd encourage you all to think about how you can come through this one better at a personal level as well. I found this crystallized in a sentence I read last week, and I wish I could remember what website I read it on because I'd give attribution to the person. Well, I can't, but obviously it impacted me because here it is. It said, when the world goes back to normal, what are you going to wish you had done during this time that it is not? So I think that is a really great way to, to, to kind of prompt your thinking about what can you be doing right now that is going to change your life? I'm going to add a few more to that one too. What will you wish you had done for others during this time? Yeah. What will you wish you had done for yourself during this time? And what will you have learned that you want to continue doing when things do return to normal as they inevitably will? So with that, I think, Tom, it's time to open the floor for questions. My mind is exploding. I feel like that emoji. <laughs> You know, the one with the uh, brain coming out. Uh, number 10 was very powerful, Heidi. Thank I've known you a long time. It was really powerful. We have got lots of questions coming in. I'm going to remind people, vote them up, because I'll, I'll use that as a signal. Let's take the one, for example, that has a number, the most votes right now. At a time like this, how do you decide whether or not to give your portfolio companies more money if they can't survive without more money? If we get to a time where a good chunk of your portfolio needs more money to survive, how do you decide which ones to give money to? It's a great question. So first of all, interestingly, we as a firm threshold, we were very concerned that this boom cycle was going for a long time. And um, without even knowing about coronavirus, we were just concerned that there was going, you know, Things have a natural cycle and we were probably coming to the end of it. And so we had encouraged a lot of our portfolio companies in 2019 to raise money and to raise enough to be able to make it through to 2021. And interestingly, 
and when we do our portfolio review, most of our portfolio, we're very fortunate that those companies did raise money and they can either uh, not change their business and keep going ahead, or for most of them, they have to recognize that change is necessary, but they have sufficient capital to reduce their expenses and stretch their runways. In the companies where that is not the case, uh, again, you know, and again, with any venture firm, what you do is you have to help those companies understand, is there a viable path forward? Is there a viable business model forward? And if there is, how can that company get funded? That company can be funded, that there are some debt options available. There are some VCs who are willing to put money in. We are willing. We have funded some of our companies. And every one of those is a case-by-case -case decision working hopefully collaboratively with the entrepreneur to determine sort of what has changed and what do we see as the path forward. Now, very often, and particularly if you're also bringing in new investors, which, which we always try to do every new round, you want to bring in new investors, the valuations at which some rounds were done in the past may not sustain right now. And, and to me, in the end, look, you know, telling an entrepreneur, hey, you're going to take more dilution now. And we sometimes as a, as a prior round holder, you know, we have to have to alter how we're holding the companies or, or whatever. The valuations impact prior investors as well in, in many cases. Wouldn't you rather own a part of something that survives than a bigger piece of something that dies? So I do think in these cases, everyone has to readjust their thinking. But Again, I go back to the point of the most important thing you can do is wait out this period by, by stretching the capital that you do have available. And that's what most of our portfolio companies are doing. Uh, thank you, Heidi. So this one's gotten a lot of votes and it, 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 seem, it also seems like one that I see that was added down below. So let, let me make sure uh, you can interpret any way you want to. What examples of initiative in crisis have you seen pay off? What have you seen fail? And I was trying to interpret that. I, you, it, it may be easier for you, but it, down below, I see somebody says, uh, you know, what sorts of ideas work best as startup side ideas in, in crisis? I'm, I'm not sure that's so, related. So, okay, so, but I get the general ideas. G give me some specific ideas of things people have done. Yeah. Right. And some of them are some of them are remarkably simple. Some of them are people decide to proactively take pay cuts and um, make it up in equity in the future just so that the so, you know, so more people can stay, you know, simple things happen. One of the things that I think happens in time of crisis when there isn't as much equity capital available is people make money the old-fashioned way, like 99% of companies that aren't appropriate for venture, they earn it from their customers. And so one of the interesting things that I've seen people do is they go to customers and they say, I, it's really important for me to keep you as a customer. What can I do for you to make sure you're gonna pay me? And, you know, and a lot of times, for example, companies that are, for example, developing a product may go to three or four of their future prospective customers and say, pay me up front now, and I will give you a, a very, very cheap license for this software for like the future, for you know, free for life, if you just help me get this thing built right now by, by paying me. So moving revenue around, pulling revenue in, doing creative deals with customers. I've seen other situations where um, companies may have a product that's appropriate to multiple sectors, 
but they decide, hey, for right now, I cannot, I cannot attack that sector. I cannot attack that geography. So why don't I go and sell a license for someone else to do that for the next couple of years and let someone else make the money off my product? Again, things are so specific to each particular company that, that someone may be dealing with. And so these, these are not really one size fits all, but very creative ways to say, how can I pull some revenue in? How can I make the money I have last longer? What are things people are willing to do to, um, to make those equations? And, and I would say the companies that do this best also encourage their whole teams to come up with these ideas, right? It isn't just about the leader who spouts these ideas from the top of, of his or her head. You know, a lot of times some of the most creative people about how to solve problems like this are the ones that, that, are, that are working every day on those front lines of those problems. So I think those are, those are some of the examples. I think that, you know, again, there's all sorts of ways to fail at this too. Um, and, and I've seen people do things that, you know, then end up backfiring on them, right? I mean, again, I mean, if you're going to do a layoff, you got to first think ahead to, to what things are the most important in your company and what are the things you're going to live without for a while. And you can't just you know, peanut butter it all over the company and, and, and make decisions on who you like the best or whatever. I mean, there are, there, you know, disciplines that you have to have around making difficult decisions to position the company that, that are, you know, that a lot of people fail at because they let their emotions and who they like get in the way of the decisions they have to make to keep their business going forward. Thanks for expanding on that. And that fits well with all your first nine points. Again, I'm glad you did number 10 about some personal advice. So can we go down that sure. path for a little bit? Because we have another one that's been voted way up. Okay. And that has to do with uh, personal matters. And you, you can guess where we're headed. Some of us will be looking for internships and jobs over the summer or maybe full-time but let's, let's just talk about internships or the jobs because as you remember, ETL has a, has a demographic that's a lot of freshmen, a lot of sophomores, a lot of juniors. All right, so given the current situation and, and the layoffs both at startups and larger enterprises, what advice would you give us? Industries we should be focusing on or other sorts of strategies? So the first piece of advice I'm going to give you is in retrospect, nobody's going to give a crap about what you did this coming summer. So I think one of the things about Stanford students, and I was one myself, and I teach a lot of them, and my daughter was one, uh, you know, until she graduated in 2018, is they worry that every internship has to be the perfect thing that builds their resume and all that kind of stuff. And particularly for those of you who actually really need the money, as I did when I was an undergrad, I couldn't, I couldn't do the resume star internship. I had to do the thing for which I got paid so that I could keep paying my, my tuition. Um, everyone's gonna cut you some slack for summer of 2020. So it's more important to think about what needs do you need to meet? If you need to make money, go make money. I don't, you know, go be a delivery person or go do, go do, cause we don't know. I mean, I think that it is going to be very hard. I think that the typical kind of internships a lot of them are just going to dry up because those companies are focused on their own survival right now. So a lot of startups where last year you'd say, hey, take a flyer and take this student. This year you're like, we got to survive. And we may not even be back in the office. How can we accommodate having someone? So I, I wish I had better advice for you. But I think just to say, relieve yourself of the obligation to build your resume this summer and do what you need to do 
it's going to be, that's going to be okay. I don't think that is going to be a ding on anybody. In fact, I would argue that if somebody you know, is applying for a job and I see that they did something that, you know, maybe wasn't a typical Stanford summer job, uh, you know, the crap job kind of stuff that people don't like to do. And I say, well, why'd you do that? And you say, well, cause I had to pay my student loans and this was a job that was available. I, I'm impressed by something like that. Yeah, and a very uh, person, a very close person to me keeps reminding me this is a perfect time to work in nonprofits. Because mm -hmm. the, the need is great. Yeah, and if you can they're, afford they're it. looking for incredibly smart and uh, driven Stanford students uh, types. So it's a, it's a win win. Yeah, this if you can go, if you can afford it, there are all sorts of opportunities. I mean, actually, I have one super funny one. Uh, Carl Bass that I talked about earlier that's making the face masks at his, at his, at his um, uh, place in Berkeley. One of his issues is he had to figure out how to get them distributed around the Bay Area quickly because the need was so great. He found a women's motorcycle group that was willing to volunteer to drive these, these face masks around. Like, isn't that awesome? Be creative about what you can do to help solve some real problems right now. Okay. Well, if you don't mind, let's get personal to you. Okay. Uh, and and um, this question has been voted way up as well. Uh, who have been your most important mentors and how did you find them? And may I just preface this folks, there is an incredible case, one of the best selling cases ever by Harvard business school, called Heidi Roizen. And it's, when was it released? In the 90s? Uh, actually, it's 20 years old now. It was re released in 2000, but it's been rewritten. It was rewritten a couple of years ago. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, but right, it's, so, it's basically the same. Yeah, and, and folks, it's, it's just an incredible read. Um, she wouldn't let me go on about her introduction. She is an icon in Silicon Valley and has, <laughs> has broken so many glass ceilings. And I've, I've been witness to this uh, at a front row seat uh, over the last few decades. But we people say the word mentor, you know, um, pretty loosely. So what what has been, who's been your most important ones and how did you choose them and how important have they been to you? So, um, and thank you, Tom. And, and one of them was Tom Byers early in my career. So there you go, friend and mentor. Um, I think, you know, first of all, I was really lucky that my, um, my dad was an entrepreneur. And by the way, he wasn't always a successful one. And we went through bankruptcies and, you know, he lost his house and my parents got divorced. And so bad stuff happened. But he was the kind of person who always said, well, why would you go work for anyone else? Why don't you just start your, you know, why you start your own thing? And he became this independent consultant. And he used to say how he would only pick the jobs that he thought they that were interesting, unless... Um, he really needed the money. And then if he thought the job was not going to be a good one, he just bid a lot of money. And if the client picked him, then he was happy because he, at least he got paid a lot to do a job he didn't want to do. So my dad was really funny about this stuff. And, and I was very fortunate that he was a person who, who believed in me and believed I could do anything and was very supportive of my decision to become an entrepreneur, um, you know, right out of business school when I did, you know, dragging my student loans along with me. Um, so I was very lucky then. I was also very lucky to be at, at what I would call the birth of the personal computer and the com personal computer revolution. I mean, I graduated from Stanford in 1980. I graduated from business school there in 83. And really, you know, the people who were coming to our 
our classes to talk and then ultimately the people I ended up working with. Um, I got to work closely with Steve Jobs. I got to work closely with Bill Gates, um, you know, Fred Gibbons. I mean, uh, well, you guys know Fred, he teaches there now. You know, a lot of people who were icons in my industry um, were, were people that I got to cut my teeth with working, uh, working with. And that made a huge difference. I also was very lucky that when I went to raise venture capital in 1989, during the same, we closed our financing the same week as the earthquake of 89. Um, so another one of those events you don't think is going to happen. Uh, I was very lucky that Ann Winblad was my venture capitalist. And she was one of the very rare women who had actually founded a tech software company. She founded a company um, in, the accounting, in the accounting space. And so Ann was a very important mentor and dear friend of mine as well. So I've been very lucky to find people like that. And I would say that through my life, I've always continued to collect what I would call fellow travelers. I mean, not all mentors need to be people older than you. I think some of my some of the people that I gain the most from are even, you know, my former students, somebody like Tess Hatch, who, who was one of, the, one of our fellows and, and somebody that I keep in touch with and I learn from Tess when we get together. So it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody, you know, ahead of you on the career path. It can just be somebody who you respect and admire and, and, um, and, and, and believe in and who's willing to give you time in exchange for you giving them time as well. You know, I think a lot of the most successful mentoring relationships work in both directions. Well, thanks. Um, and I, that brings us to our last question. So I'm going to use my silver bullet and I'm going to build on your uh, number eight. And that was where you talked about the best leaders don't forget their uh, empathy, their humanity. Yep. Do they forget their ethics and values and principles? <laughs> As you know, I've been yeah. working on the last couple of years on ethics and entrepreneurship before this happened. Why are, why, why are values and principles as important as ever? They are, I mean, as, as Tom knows, um, and, and it's a lot about my, the case about me that, that um, HBS has written. I'm a huge believer in leading what I call a relationship-driven life and not a transaction-driven life. I believe it actually makes you a happier person and more successful in your business. And I believe that when you believe in relationships, you understand the relationship is more important than any individual transaction. And therefore your ethics and values as an overlay, you're going to be remembered more by your long-term application of your ethics and values than, you know, than any individual transaction. I think the challenge is that, you know, these downtimes, you know, the, what is the saying? Character is not built, it's revealed. There, there is some really bad behavior that goes on during downturns. And there are people who, who completely self-optimize and there are people who, and sometimes, and, you know, I think sometimes people just lack empathy. They don't think about how hard it must be for the other person. I mean, one of the things I've said to entrepreneurs very often when I'm coaching them and they're dealing with something and, and they're so in their head and they're so into, you know, whatever it is. And, and I say to them, you know, everyone else comes to work. And when you talk the whole time, they're filtering it thinking, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for my job? What does it mean for stability? Am I going to have a job tomorrow? What does it mean for my income? Right? That's what people are thinking about. They're not thinking about you as a leader. They're thinking about how it applies to them. And so I do think that, that people sometimes, if you start with empathy, 
And if you think about you as a person in relationship with other people is going to be more important than any individual transaction. And I think I'm sort of living proof of that, right? I've been around doing, I've been in the Valley for 40 something years working here. Um, I cannot look back and say any particular transaction was frankly all that important or not, but the relationships I've built and the fact that I think people know what they're getting when they get me and know they can count on me. It, that's super important to me. And, and by the way, not all these decisions are easy, right? You, you, you know, companies do fail and companies fail for good reasons and companies fail for bad reasons and bad timing and wrong decisions and whatever. Um, you know, bad things will happen, but that doesn't mean you have to become a bad person. And I try very hard to separate the things that happen from what the appropriate ethics that I try to apply every day in, in what I do. And I'm not perfect. I mean, sometimes things fail, you know, but I, but it is my North star. And, and I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it allows me to both do work that I love and make meaningful friendships with people and sleep at night, which is very important. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.